This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. Most of you are too young to remember Merv Griffin. There's a few of us that are old enough to remember him. He was a very significant figure in the world of media. He was a talk show host for many years. Even if you don't remember Merv Griffin, you know part of his work. If you've ever watched Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune, those were his inventions. In fact, the thinking song during Jeopardy that's played during Final Jeopardy, well, he wrote that. And uh, as a talk show host for many decades, he would always go to commercial by saying these words. I'll be right back after this message. Well, on his tombstone at his grave are inscribed these words. I will not be right back after this message. Now, I know that was there for comedic value. Uh, I don't think that Merv Griffin was a believer in Jesus Christ, and one must be a believer in Jesus Christ in order to go to heaven. So I don't know that about him. But this statement, I will not be right back after this message, is very thoughtful. It's very profound. Uh, it's uh, it's thought-provoking. It's speaking to the permanence of the grave. And by grave, if we mean death, it is synonymous with death, then that is a very insightful word. But if by grave we mean the grave site, uh, the burial plot, the tomb, the cemetery, well, that's not always permanent. Take, for example, Abraham Lincoln, who was shot on the 14th day of April, 1865, in Washington, D.C., and died the next morning on April 15th at 7.22 a.m. By the time his body was finally, and I mean finally, at the end, laid to rest, it was moved a total of 17 times, and the coffin was opened six times to see that the body was not stolen. The last time someone saw the body of Abraham Lincoln was on September 26, 1901, 36 years after his death. And the last living person to actually see the body of Abraham Lincoln was a man by the name of Fleetwood Lindley, who was only 13 at the time that the casket was opened for the final time. And he didn't die until 1963, the same year in which President Kennedy was shot. Now, all that to say, death is final, but burial is often not. Well, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we're going through the book of Jude verse by verse. It's the 65th book of the Bible. It's a very small book. It's only one chapter in length. It's right before the book of Revelation. It's way in the back of the Bible, and I would ask that you would please turn there at this time. Now, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1086. The book of Jude is a warning to the church to be on guard against false teachers. Why? Because they are crafty, because they are corrupt, and because they are capable of doing a lot of harm to the people of God. Now, on the one hand, God himself, with no assistance, 
promises to protect his church against these villains, and he has consistently and thoroughly done that throughout history. And Jude gives us three examples of that. For example, the children of Israel, in their unbelief, did not enter into the land of promise. God took care of them. Lucifer and his demons that rebelled, well, God took care of them. And Sodom and Gomorrah, well, God took care of them with fire out of heaven. So in that sense, we can rest and we can hope knowing that the church ultimately is going to be safe because God will protect the church. But on the other hand, Jude tells us that we have a responsibility both to identify these false teachers and to fight earnestly or to contend for the faith against them. Now, how can we fight against them unless we know who they are and how can we know who they are unless we know what they look like? And so the last time we were together, we looked at Jude 8, which is essentially Jude serving as an eyewitness working with a police sketch artist giving an accurate rendering of their character. And what did we learn from verse 8? Well, we learned that these false teachers duplicate. In other words, they are not original. They're just putting a fresh coat of paint upon some ancient deception or some ancient heresy. We learned that they dream, that they rely upon direct revelation from God rather than the written word of God. We learned that they defile, they are morally perverse, they use the concept of grace and they use it as a license to give themselves the freedom to sin. We learned that they defy, that they are rebellious, and then at the end of verse 8, we've noticed that they defame. With arrogance, they speak out against demonic forces. Which brings us to our text today, uh, verses 9 and 10, but we will only get to verse 9 today. And basically what verse 9 is, it is a commentary on the end of verse 8. It's an amplification on the end of verse 8. Let me read all three verses just to put the text into its context. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones or demons. Now, here's an example of, of uh, that when a, an angel did not blaspheme the devil. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasonable animals, understand instinctively once again father we bow our heads before you and we acknowledge our dependence upon your assistance lord i myself as the preacher am dependent upon you and so lord i pray that i would be filled with your holy spirit and able this day to speak words which will bring glory to you and will bring truth to these people lord please help me to preach In such a way, dear God, that it would not just be uh, the uh, homily of reading words off of a page or reading Bible verses. But Lord, I pray that there would be a proclamation today where your power would go forth. And Father, I pray for each person that have come in, have come into this service today. Lord, categorically, they are in two places. Either, Lord, they know you or they do not. For those who do, Lord, I pray that today that there would be a fresh revitalization of the fact that the gospel is of first importance. And, Lord, that this word would resonate in their hearts and that they would leave here, Lord, more equipped to serve you and to love you. And, Father, for those that do not know you well lord i pray also for them the same thing that they would come to understand for the first time 
that the gospel is of first importance. And oh Lord, that that gospel would awaken their hearts and that you would effectually call them and regenerate them and save them this day. But Lord, whatever it is that you are intending for this message, we acknowledge that whatever will happen, Lord, is going to happen because of you. And so with earnest hearts, we cry out to you and ask, Lord, please show your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you wish to take notes, the space is provided in your bulletin. And what we have in front of us is one of the more fascinating texts in all the Bible. If we would try to envision or to dramatize the scene, it would fall into the category of the spectacular. I mean, get the picture. Moses, uh, Moses, uh, the greatest prophet and lawgiver and miracle worker that the nation of Israel has known up to that point. He, he has been leading the people for 40 years, and now he's been told that he is not permitted to go into the land of promise. And he has journeyed by himself. He's left the people. He has said goodbye. He has walked to the top of Mount Nebo in the land of Moab across the Jordan River from Jericho. He is up on Mount Pisgah's lofty height. We get that, that little phrase in the, in the hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. And he's there and he's given two commands by the Lord. The first one is, uh, get up as high as you can so that you can see the land. You're never going to touch it, but I'm going to let you take a look at it. And here's the second command. I want you to go up there and I want you to die. I just want you to die. Go up there by yourself and die. Now, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34 and listen to the account as it is recorded in that text. Deuteronomy chapter 34, the death of Moses and the burial of Moses. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Mount Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan and Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea and the Gav and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, the Lord, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor was unabated and the people of israel wept for moses in the plains of moab 30 days then the days of weeping and mourning for moses were ended so that's the account that we have in the scripture of the death and burial of moses now what we do not have but which is true is this the account or the story That at some point during the burial process or shortly thereafter, Satan makes a move to steal the corpse. Uh, But he's not successful. And the reason why he's not successful is because God sent the archangel Michael to contend with him. And that word contend is not there by mistake. It's the same word that Jude uses back in verse 3, urging the church to earnestly contend or to fight for the faith with the false teachers. So get the picture. You have the remains of Israel's greatest leader, lawgiver, and miracle worker. 
uh, and you have the highest ranking angel and you have the highest ranking demon and they all come together and both the angel and the demon have an interest in the body. Now, what is their interest in this body? Well, we don't have to speculate about Michael because his desire is God's desire and God's desire is that that body be buried and be unknown and stay buried. That's not too hard. But Satan's motive requires a little bit more reflection because God does not tell us in his word exactly what the motive of the devil was. We are left to speculate somewhat and whatever conclusion we draw needs to be a humble conclusion and not one which is dogmatic. But I believe that we do have some evidence from scripture as to why he would want the body of Moses and what his design may have been. But rest assured, whatever his motive may have been, the exit of Moses' body from that grave would not serve to glorify God, nor would it edify God's people. And also, it is very safe to assume, uh, and that this, this, this takes no speculation whatsoever, that this was a very important undertaking. Uh, here's why I say that. Seeing as how Satan deploys his demons to do his work on what we might call, if there is any such thing, minor cases. Well, that is the case. But if you want something done right, do it yourself. When there's something that the devil really wants to get done, he goes after it himself. And God does not just send any angel to halt the grave robber, but he sends the archangel and i emphasize the word the because every time we see archangel in the bible uh, there's only one uh, it is singular uh, for example in first thessalonians 4:16 speaking of the second coming it says for the lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and with the voice of an archangel not archangels and with the sound of a trumpet now some Bible commentators, both those in cults and those not in cults, have said that Michael is a code name for Christ. And that every time you see Michael in Scripture, it's actually talking about Jesus. Now, the most notable um, group that says that Michael is Jesus is are the Jehovah's Witnesses. But there are also some that are Orthodox in their faith that have said this as well. And part of their argument is that the name Michael means who is like God. I don't think that that's a terribly strong argument. If we were going to use that same logic, then we would also say that Micah, the prophet Micah, is also Jesus because his name means who is like Jehovah. And so that's a ridiculous argument. But at the end of the day, Jesus is Jesus, and he is the eternally blessed God. And Michael is Michael, and he is not Jesus, and he is the archangel. Now, as I said earlier, it doesn't take much imagination to envision this encounter as sort of a, a clash of superheroes. Uh, it could be made perhaps into an action adventure or maybe even into a, a video game. But I don't want us to look at it in this way. In fact, I want us to steer away from this sensationalism uh, of this uh, confrontation. I want us to limit our speculation. I even want us to redirect away from the temptation and the gravitational pull that would take this text and use it as a springboard in a message on how to engage in spiritual warfare. I think all of those things perhaps could be done, but rather I want to go a different direction. What I want to do is I want us to examine the question, why would Satan want the body of Moses? And I want us to 
present a reasonable opinion based upon Scripture as to why Satan would have an interest in obtaining it. And then we're going to look at a few applications from that. So, why did Satan want the body? Well, I have narrowed our choices down to three. Uh, There are some others, and I I don't think that they even bear uh, mentioning, but there are three that I think could fall uh, within orthodoxy. And here's the first one. It has to do with idolatry. It has to do with idolatry. Uh, First of all, let's look at this, this being of Satan. To ascertain why people do what they do, it's helpful to know something about them. And what is the person like? Well, we know from John 8, 44, that he, the devil, is a murderer from the beginning, that he has nothing to do with the truth. There's no truth in him. He's a liar and he's the father of lies. We also know from other places in Scripture that he is a deceiver, that he masquerades as an angel of light, that he's an accuser of the brethren, that he's an adversary, that he's a destroyer, that he's an enemy, that he's the ruler of darkness, and the hits just keep coming, and I've just scratched the surface. And so he is particularly interested in steering people away from the true and living God to that which is false, namely idols. In other words, you get the idea. If you're building a case as to why people do what they do, they are twisted and they are deceptive and there's nothing straightforward or nothing about them which is of face value, well, you you can see where idolatry would come into play. Maybe he wanted the body of Moses so that he could parade it in front of the children of Israel as a relic or an idol. Because people, particularly the children of Israel, are inclined toward superstition and idolatry. I mean, it was these people that made the golden calf. Uh, Moses disappeared for a few days, and immediately they set up a golden calf. And no sooner did they get into the land of promise, but they forgot the things that the Lord did, and their hearts were inclined toward the things of the people of the land of Canaan, and they were given almost instantly over to idolatry. And people haven't changed. They like icons and statues and relics, the shroud or whatever it is that is supposedly touched the face of Jesus from the handkerchief of Veronica and other nonsense like that. It's all just a form of idolatry. You know, when relic collection was at its prime, one of the prime things that people would go to see would be a piece of the cross of Jesus Christ. That was one of the most desired items. And someone has said that if all of the wood collected was brought together from the cross of Christ into one place, there would be enough lumber there to reassemble Noah's ark. Uh, the, the wood that people would say, now this is a part of the cross of Christ, was not actually a part of the cro- cross of Christ. But even if it was, it, it's just a form of idolatry. All that to say, Satan loves to parade stuff and things and images in front of people, which they instinctively translate into idols. Let me give you the saddest example of this in all the Bible. You remember the story from Numbers chapter 21, when the people were grumbling, the serpents were sent out among the people, they began to bite the people, and as a cure for this, God in mercy tells Moses to take a standard, a pole, and to put a bronze snake on that and to lift it up. And whoever would look to that would look and they would live. All they had to do was look and live. Well, that was a very gracious thing that God did. And, and, and it was gracious because it was helpful, it was good, it was healing, it was saving. 
But most importantly, it was helpful because it was a type of Christ. John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That serpent was a type of Christ. And so you would think that the people who were healed by this would look back to that and that they would bring honor to God in relation to the bronze serpent. Do you know, by the time you get to Hezekiah, which is 900 years later, when Hezekiah took over as king, it says in 2 Kings 18.4, he removed the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherah. In other words, he started clearing the place of idols. And here we go. Listen to this. 2 Kings 18.4, and he, Hezekiah, broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Why? For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. In other words, they took the very thing which was, which was intended to be a proclamation of the gospel and they made an idol out of it. And they just didn't do it for a couple of decades. They did it for 900 years. So, imagine what Satan could do with that corpse. I mean, this man Moses had been their leader for 40 years. At the outset, the people were very disrespectful for him, but by this time, Moses had a very high approval rating. He'd been leading them now without conflict for about three decades or more, and now he's gone, and the people are embarking upon a new adventure, and, and, and they're going across the river into a land that they have never been. And these people are going to go to war for the first time, and where are we going to be without Moses? Who's going to raise their hands and give us the fight? Could you imagine what would happen if that body were to reappear? Now, maybe the people initially would look at that body and say, praise be to God, and they would take comfort in it. But eventually, it would deteriorate into something which would be idolatrous. Maybe it would start out sort of like a weekend at Bernie's, you know, where they would just drag the body around and maybe prop Moses up and make him sort of a mascot, but it would degenerate into idolatry. That would be very much in line with Satan's character. So maybe that's what he wanted to do. But there's another option. And this one has to do with the grave, uh, with the burial site. That being used for idolatry, uh, where his body would be. You see, those who hold this position point out that the first position is not a good position because the Jews really, although they were into all kinds of sins, they were never really into the sin of worshiping the remains or the body parts of their previous heroes. In fact, they were very much into burial spots more than into bodies. Even this day, when a Jewish person dies, they're pretty quick to get that person into the ground. And the place of the burial is more important to them than the actual body. Uh, Let me prove my point. Go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 49. This is Jacob. He's now in Egypt. He's about to die. So you're going to be buried there? No, listen to the instructions that Jacob gives back in Genesis chapter 49, verses 29 through 31. Then he, Jacob, commanded them and said to them, 
I am to be gathered to my people. In other words, I am going to be with my people. I'm going into the afterlife. I'm going to be with uh, my people in paradise. Bury me with my fathers, that is, bury my body in with my fathers in the cave, which is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and there I buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. And so you see, this was very important that he get back to this gravesite. Turn one chapter over, the last two verses of the book of Genesis. Now his son Joseph is about to die, and here's what happens. Genesis 50, 25 and 26. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry my bones from there. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Here's Joseph. He's 110 years old. He's about to die. Now, he's going to be 430 years before they make the exodus. And he says, listen, it's not going to be in your lifetime, but I want you to pass this on to your children and your children's children and so forth. Take my bones, put them in that coffin and make sure that it makes it back to the land of promise. And so they kept that casket for 430 years and then someone was responsible. Imagine if this was your job for 40 years in the wilderness to be walking around with the casket of Joseph with his bones. This was very important to them. Very important to them. So do you think there's a chance that if all of a sudden the body of Moses were to reappear They wouldn't give him a decent burial. Maybe right there in the land of Moab. But probably they would take that body. They would carry it across the Jordan River. And they would bury it in the land of promise. They would mark it and they would note it. And possibly people would make pilgrimages to that grave. And in time they would render worship at that grave. Worship which is due to God alone. You see as Americans. We do our best to remember our heroes. And to inter them with grandeur. Side note. Do you want to know how dumb I am? I'm a young minister. An elderly woman dies. Her son, who is not a believer, comes into town. We're talking about the funeral arrangements. And I said, well, the memorial service will be in such and such a place. And the internment will be at such and such a graveyard. Well, an internment, uh, that's what I think we did with the Japanese during World War II. We put them in camps. An interment means the burial. And he says, now, what is it that you're going to do with my mother's remains? Uh, I had to go look it up. But that's a side note. Back to the text. As Americans, I mean, my goodness, who's buried in Grant's tomb? We, we know where everyone is buried. But if you want to know how to do this, you really need to go back to the Jews because they, for hundreds and hundreds of years, would mark the grave and they would know exactly where it would be. In fact, in Peter's sermon at, on the day of Pentecost, in trying to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, points to the illustration of David. And in Acts 2.29, he says, brethren... 
I may say to you with confidence, there's no speculation here about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and here we go, and his tomb is with us to this day. And that's a thousand years later. Now, it contained David's bones, and the point that Peter is trying to make is that the tomb of Jesus is still with us, except that tomb was empty. You see, this theory that the burial of Moses uh, and his gravesite would become an idol is not very far-fetched. And by the way, the devil is very consistent. Uh, one of the methods that he used to deceive even people on the day of the resurrection back in Matthew chapter 18 was to say that the body of Jesus would, was stolen by the disciples. We know that that wasn't true. Uh, we know it wasn't true because there were Roman soldiers there and there was a seal of of Pilate on the grave, and we know that the disciples themselves would not have been able to roll that rock, and we know that they were cowardly, and we know that they were very confused, and they had no interest in stealing his body, but it does prove that the devil is a liar and that he will try to put lies into the minds of people, and that grave sites are very important, and he could certainly turn the grave of Moses into a symbolic stumbling block But in order to do that, what did he need first? He needed the body of Moses. Now, that's argument number two. And as possible as this argument is, I see one glaring flaw with this argument. You know what that flaw is? The flaw is, just as the Jews did not collect body parts or practice taxidermy on their heroes, neither do we ever at any time ever see them in Scripture being accused of worshiping at grave sites. Uh, We do see this in our day. Uh, The false teacher, the heretic Benny Hinn, got part of his inspiration uh, at the grave of Catherine Kuhlman, but the Jews didn't do this. In fact, you can't find any incidents in Scripture where the Jews engaged in this sort of nonsense. The closest thing that we have is Matthew 23, where Jesus is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, 29 and following, Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying that if we had lived in the days of our father, would we not have taken, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the innocent blood of the prophets. But Jesus points this out not to chastise them for taking good care of the gravesite. He does this in order to point out their hypocrisy. For just as you are taking good care of the gravesite, you should have also listened to their words. He is chastening them for the fact that they never listened to, nor did they respect living prophets who speak the truth, only dead ones. And he's speaking primarily about himself. So, I say that to say this, while it is possible that Satan may have wanted to make the grave of Moses an idol, I still don't think that's our best option. Which brings us to our third and final option, and this one is my guess, and that is this, why did Satan want the body of Moses? Here's your answer, because the gospel is of first importance. Because the gospel is of first importance. And if he, the devil, can infect the gospel, he disarms the very power of God unto salvation. How could he, by the acquisition of a rotting, 
bag of bones, the younger brother of Aaron, negatively affect the gospel? Follow my argument. We have to start by asking the question, why did God not allow Moses to go into the promised land? Well, the answer ultimately is because of unbelief. Hebrews 3.19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Well, what specific type of unbelief? The specific type of unbelief on the case of Moses has to go back to Exodus chapter 17. You remember in Exodus chapter 17, the people are thirsty, and that's not a sin. But they begin to grumble against the Lord and against Moses, and that is a sin. And so what God does in mercy is he tells Moses, take your staff, take your staff, the same one that you held out over the Red Sea, and go to the rock at Horeb and strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, water is going to gush out and it will satisfy the people. And that is exactly what happened. Fade in, fade out, move from Exodus to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20. Once again, the people get thirsty and once again, the people begin to grumble. And what ends up happening? Turn, please, to Numbers chapter 20, and I will show you. This is the reason why Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. Numbers chapter 20, verses 8 through 12. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell. Now, if you're using a pew Bible right now, please do not write in it. If you have your own Bible, please take your pen and write underneath or underline that word tell or speak to and tell the rock speak to the rock before the before their eyes to yield its water you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle and Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? So Moses is disgusted at this point, and in verse 11, and Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. Once again, please do not write in our pew Bibles, but if you have your own Bible, underline the word struck. Speak and struck, tell and struck. Struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Now you look at this on the surface and you say, Wow, does the punishment really fit the crime here? I mean, after all, didn't Moses do some things in the past that were like worse than hitting a rock? I mean, as I remember, he he killed a man and then he had an obstruction of justice and he buried the man in the sand. He he, he ran away for 40 years. I I mean, Moses had done some things that were pretty bad, but now he just says he's angry with the people. Uh, You can't be mad at him for being angry with the people. He takes the, the staff, he hits the rock, and God said, that's it, you're not going in. What's going on here? Why would God prohibit him from going in? Turn please to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and we have the answer. 
Please do not listen to those who say that Moses could not enter in because he lost his temper. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. That is the drink which we are talking about in Exodus chapter 17. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And here we go. And the rock was Christ. And the rock was Christ. This is all symbolic. And the scripture is very clear that this is a symbol of the gospel. And it says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And so the striking of the rock is equivalent to the crucifixion. It is the striking of Christ. And failure to believe God and to obey with the striking of the rock, even though it was symbolic, was an act not of just impulsive disobedience, but it was a tampering with and an insulting of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that God, and this is the gospel, God is good and that we are bad and that our bad can only be paid for by the good son of God, Jesus Christ. And that, our, and that the payment for our sins, which was made once and once only by Jesus at the cross of Calvary, cannot be touched and it cannot be tampered with. And even to symbolically apply an additional sacrifice is to say that his one-time death wasn't enough and this arose the severe displeasure of God. Now I want to tell you something today. You can get a lot of things wrong, and Moses did, and I do. But the one thing which God will not permit you to get wrong, you ultimately will not be okay. You cannot get this thing wrong, and that is the gospel. And the one reason that Moses did not step foot on the other side of the Jordan is that he did not properly respect the gospel. Now, was he saved? Absolutely. We know that he was saved. I mean, my goodness, he shows up in the Mount of Transfiguration. He shows up in Hebrews chapter 11. And in Deuteronomy 32.50, he says, be gathered to your people. In other words, you're going to go to heaven. But your earthly chastisement, which again is symbolic of the gospel, is that the land of promise, the land of Canaan, which is symbolic of heaven, God is saying that there is only one means to get there, and that is by embracing the gospel message and the gospel message which is correct and the gospel message alone and the gospel message in faith. And in order to ensure that you do not get carried across that Jordan River, here's what God does. He says, I'm going to bury you myself. Now, if that body were to reappear again, what would the people do with it? I don't know if they'd immediately make an idol. I don't know if immediately they would make some sort of a grave that would become an idol. But I'll tell you what they would do. They would take that body and they would carry it across the Jordan River as they are walking in with that body. And that body is making its way onto the land of Canaan. It could kind of be a let's win one for the Gipper. Even though he's dead, he's still leading us and they're carrying that body. And Satan understood the value of the gospel. And that's why he has always been trying to divert people away from the cross. 
That is why at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter came up with this wonderful revelation from God that said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Amen. Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father, which is heaven, has revealed this to you. And from that time, Jesus begins to tell his disciples how he must, must, must go to Jerusalem. And be handed over to the chief priests and the elders and to be crucified and to die and to raise again on the third day. And what was Peter's response to that? It was demonic. It was satanic. He said, may it never be. That's why Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And that's why God buries that body and he sends Michael the archangel to say, see to it that that body stays right there. Because it is the plot and it is the ploy and it is the method of Satan whether it's the entering into the land of Canaan or whether it is with you here today to divert your attention away from the sufficiency of the cross. And some of you who are not saved, you are looking for a million things to do or things to say or things to give. But I want to tell you, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And if you add anything to that or you subtract anything from that, you have met with the displeasure of God. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. Now, back to this scene very quickly. God digs the grave. Satan plots to steal the body. The Lord deploys Michael, the archangel, to protect or to secure the permanence of the interment. And he contends, he fights with the devil. Now, what did that look like? Let me go back to what I said at the outset of the message. Believe me, you don't want to know. Uh, You don't have the capacity to envision it. If you had a ringside seat for this, you would pass out or you would die. It would would not turn into a cool home video game or an action-adventure movie. It would make Hiroshima look like a campfire. We don't know what happens in the unseen world. But we don't have the capacity either. But when you consider that one angel, not the archangel, but one angel killed 185,000 men. And Satan is the most powerful of all the demons. When these two clashed and went into a contention with one another over that body, it, 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 I'm glad that we don't know. So we don't know what happened. But we do know That at some point during the fight, rather than to bring a railing accusation against or to speak blasphemous words against the devil, in humility, Michael simply says, the Lord rebuke you. And so Jude, writing to this church and arguing from the greater to the lesser, says that if Michael did not go toe-to-toe with him, but gave it back to the Lord, should we in our humility not give all of our problems and our enemies over to the Lord, whether they be human or demonic, whether our problems be spiritual or whether our problems be physical? Give them to the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. God, you put him in his place. And guess what happened? The body of Moses did not move one inch. And to this day... Nobody knows where it is. And for 30 days, the people mourned. And when that body didn't show up, they moved on and they crossed the Jordan River and they possessed the land. And Moses' body never made it to the other side. Now, 
How do we apply this message today? Well, first of all, I want to say this to you. If you are saved, this story should cause you to take the gospel far more seriously than you do. We should always be dwelling in the glories of Calvary and trying to go deeper into the glories of Calvary. We should study the gospel. We should memorize the gospel. We should sing and praise the Lord for the gospel. We should spread the gospel. We should be motivated by the gospel. And we should be riveted to this one fact, that it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And that is the end of the story. If you're not saved this day, please know that there is one way to cross from this side to the next, and that is that Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, and you will either totally put your trust in him or you will perish eternally. Finally, it should cause us all to be humble. Oh, it should cause us to be humble. If the archangel handed the problem over to the Lord, the Lord rebuke you, Should we not be more prayerful? Should we not be more trusting? Should we not cast all of our cares upon him and do it quickly and thoroughly? Oh, that we would be motivated. Oh, that we would be motivated by the humility of Michael. I pray that this message today, whether you agree with my conclusions or not, and you're certainly free to to disagree, But I prayed today at the end of this message that you would certainly see that the gospel is of first importance. Father in heaven, thank you for a time that we've had today in your word dealing with a difficult passage, but yet one, Lord, which which glorifies you. I pray, dear God, that these meditations which we've had today, Lord, would not leave us soon, but, Lord, they would change us and cause us, Lord, to be more like your son. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.